Well, good morning, folks. It's good to be back on the podcast with you all. I'm excited to share a conversation I had with another new friend today. Um, his name is Keyshawn Washington from York, Pennsylvania. We'll get into that in a little bit. I just wanted to remind you, because you'll probably notice it quite a bit throughout this conversation, that you get what and who I am on this podcast. So if you hear background noise of kids, of people talking, sirens blaring out the window, whatever, like that's the situation I am podcasting in. And I don't, oh, I'm not ashamed of that, but I just wanted to give you a heads up as I think this episode may have a little bit more. And speaking of that, at the very beginning, I talked about how I'm not going to do much editing, which is true. I'm not going to do much editing, although because there was quite a bit of background noise, I did try to take out the background noise as much as possible. Even now, you probably hear some talking in the background. Um, also, there's different places throughout the episode where I did edit some things out. Um, some of my guests... I want my guests to feel comfortable on the podcast. And so I do say that, you know, if you, if you say something and you prefer to have it edited out or reset or whatever, that's fine. Um, I don't, I can't remember how much of that I did on this episode. But anyways, I just wanted to give that little intro just to warn you in case there's some like scream in the background halfway through and you're wondering where in the world is, what's going on? Um, I have three boys, and they're full of energy, and my wife is a lovely, beautiful lady, and we have hardwood floors, so there's a lot of noise, and my wife does an incredible job trying to keep them quiet while I'm recording. <laughs> Actually, kind of the deal is that life can go on for the most part as it is understanding that there will be background noise at the door and I wanted to let you know about it. So anyways, without too much further ado, hope you enjoy my conversation with Keyshawn Washington. good to be here today on Unfeigned Christianity again. I have a another new friend. I've been making some new friends recently in, in my interviews, and I'm excited to have Keyshawn Washington with me today to discuss uh, race and, and just hear his story growing up in the city. Keyshawn is from York, Pennsylvania, grew up in York, and has lived all your life in York, except for your time at Faith Builders. Is that right? That's right. Two years. Yeah. So uh, two years at Faith Builders, uh, taking the teaching apprenticeship, and now you're teaching at Tidings of Peace Christian School. Mm-hmm. What um? What grades? Yeah, teach teach sixth and seventh. Well, last year I was sixth and seventh grade. This year I'm seven and eight. I'm kind okay. of been following my class for the last three years. Okay. And uh, so yeah, I'm middle school this year. 
are you going to continue following them up through high school or how does that work? We don't know. Um, I might get my seventh graders again, but okay. our grade splits from eight to nine and then I enter high school. And okay. um, if our high school teacher leaves, it's possible, but I like middle school, high school. Um, have to worry about credit hours and oh, yeah. it gets, it gets too complicated. And yeah. my history class and middle school, I can do, I can do whatever I want and yeah. test them however I want. And high school, it's, I do teach high school history but um, it's only one class compared to having all of them. And yeah. So who knows? You know, every year we change it around. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Sounds good. I taught three years. Uh, well, it was. Are you guys self-paced, like ACE, or what curriculum do you use? We're a hybrid. We're, we're sort of transitioning into classroom style. Oh, um, okay. Okay. As we go. Yeah. But, yeah, I taught ACE for three years. I had second through 11th for wow. uh, the most was 14 students, but usually it was about 11 students in my classroom. So, so I, uh, I, I enjoyed high school. I enjoyed middle school too. Um, they, they, they keep you hopping that age. And, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um so i i got to know you Keyshawn. i mean i discovered you through your blog i forget i did i failed to look up the name of it before the call here but is it Keyshawn washington or what's the name of your blog um Ur urbanite musings urbanite musings the, the name that's of right is. yeah yeah and i forget exactly how i saw your blog first but i really tuned in when you started a series on how to uh, do inner city missions, basically. Is that correct? That's kind of what the series went along. And you told your story, yeah. kind of shared your story, and then also had some really uh, fascinating, profound insight into how to connect with inner city youth. Um, it stuck out to me because we do that here in LA. Um, we work with inner city young people and and i love hearing um from someone who grew up in the city and had people reaching out to you and hearing that perspective um we get that some with some of our kids here as they're growing up older but i, th I think it is incredibly insightful to hear that voice um and then I I think it was was it April or maybe it was later in the summer that you had a Anabaptist perspective. Reagan Schrock interviewed you. Yeah, I think it was April or May. Okay, yep. and I listened to that and really appreciated your your story. Just your story, but also I guess your heart um, that came through your heart for kids, your heart for Jesus, and bringing bringing people bringing your your students to Jesus and so I just I would love to hear your story first I think we'll start there just you share whatever you feel led and when I first reached out to you I think it was back in March if I remember correctly um, I, I would love to hear 
after hearing your story, I would love to hear thoughts on race and ra- racial relations. <laughs> I don't, I don't even really know how to talk about it, but um, <laughs> the relationship within the church, within the Anabaptist church of people of color and white, uh, maybe we'll get into some of that later, but just for my audience, just to get a, a better feel for who you are and, and what God has brought you through and, and done in your life. Why don't you share your story at least briefly? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, share what you feel is relevant, then I might ask some questions with it too. Sure. Yeah, feel free to ask questions. Um, you know, when I go around at churches and tell my story, I spend 45 minutes, and <laughs> I don't intend to spend that much time now, so maybe you'll have to ask questions. But I grew up in York. Um I spent the first eight years of my life on the East End. Um, And on the East End, there was a lot of um, drug addicts. But when I moved, I was nine years old when I moved to the South End. Uh, We called that the Hood on Duke Street. And there you'd see a junker, a really cheap car driving right behind a really expensive car. And the expensive cars you knew were either people coming in to sell products or drug dealers. Hmm. Um, And so we... Me and my friends grew up in the reality of drugs. We knew that that was the biggest obstacle in our life was drugs. And whenever there's drugs, there's there's often gang violence, yeah. um, especially in the cities. Um, so naturally, my parents were also addicted to drugs, and their highs were traumatizing. I would um, I remember one time I was I walked in their room looking for something and I stepped on a crack pipe. Um, and that was sort of my first wake up call to um, there's some I've finally discovered what it is that is in between me and my parents. Um, and hmm. why, why am I not loved? Why, why don't they want me or spend as much time with me as, you know, why don't I live a normal life? Everybody at school, they go to Hershey Park, they do all these things. And I come home to fights and yelling. And, hmm. um, you know, why, why is that? And I discovered that it was drugs. Um, and then, so then another another thing was their highs were really traumatizing. So my dad, his highs actually sobered him in some way. Um, he was a little mentally held back because of his pills he took for his illnesses. Um, but he was very competent, very, very smart man. And he passed away three years ago. And the longer I live, the more I see how much he really did know and how wise he was. It's unfortunate that's how it happens in life, yeah. that we don't appreciate what happened until it's gone. But um, he um, he sobered up and became more interactive. Um, he was sweaty and high, but we had our best conversations when he was either relieved from his withdrawal soon after the high or high. My mom, though, would turn really super pale and almost like she'd become a ghost. Um, you'd never seen someone so white before. And wow. uh, her pupils would, di- would dilate, and she'd walk around the house um, with her eyes wide open, and she'd sort of suck her face in, um, suck her bottom lip in. And you'd go and try to talk to her, but she couldn't respond. And so I remember at probably eight or nine, I was just screaming at her to – to acknowledge me, screaming at her to answer my questions and knowing full and well why she was the way she was, 
but not being able to get a response. And to me, that's the picture that I think best encapsulates what what was happening when I was young. I was screaming at them for love. And and again, time and love and Jesus can heal a lot. I, I love my parents today. Um, I have a good relationship with my mom today. But at the time, they were addicts, yeah. which meant that their, their addictions became more important than me. Um, and so Bible Baptists, they bring about six buses into York every Sunday. Um, everybody that's grown up in my generation has gone to Bible Baptists at least once. And um, so they bust you out to Red Line and then they sit you in a gym full of 500 teenagers and preteens. Um, and they, um, you know, Brother Carl would get up there and preach about salvation and about um, coming to know God and strike fear into our hearts that we're going to hell if we don't accept God. So every Sunday, probably for 50 uh, weeks straight, I would go get saved because I was afraid that I would go to hell. Um, wow. And my way to not going to hell was to go up front, cry, pray, and then go home and be a little better than I was the day before. Um, and so they kept telling me that I was already saved. There was nothing, nothing that I could do to lose my salvation. Um, and I never bought that. That felt really shallow that all I have to do is say a few words and then bang, I'm saved forever. Hmm. I didn't want a, a religion that involved that type of commitment. Um, I wanted to be invested in something in life that meant something, but I wasn't finding anything. And so my first experience with church was very empty. Um, it was all on the list of other things in my life that were a waste of time. And so after about a year of going, when I was 10, more like I was nine, I stopped going and I basically cursed God. I said, hmm. you know, I, I identified that God was real, but I also identified that he was the white man's God. Hmm. And um, these Baptist people were nice people, but I could never be like them. There's two, God just gave me a bad card and I was bitter because of that. Um so then uh, my night guy, his name is Jonathan, um, he came and knocked on my door um, in the hood. I'd been living there for six months or so, and he was about to move in down the street, but had been familiar with the area. He had bought a church there that we almost planted a church in. We ended up not doing it after all, but he was in the area for that reason. And he was soliciting for Bible school, BBS. And he knocked on my door and invited me, and my first impression was that uh, he must be a Christian because he's white, and he must be um, wanting to push that on me. And so I wanted to shut the door in his face, especially when he said, hey, we have a vacation Bible school, and I'm like, vacation? I can't take vacations. You know, I'm a poor kid from the hood. And, and then they explained it more. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the, the term vacation Bible school. It doesn't yeah. make sense. But, um, you know, um, and so my dad, knowing that, you know, he could be important. He could be a cop. Um, you don't want to slam a door in a cop's face. He could he could be selling um, something worthwhile. He could be shutting off our gas. Um, there were times, I remember at least three occasions, where people came in to shut off our utilities, and I cried and convinced them not to. It was a regular, regular thing to see someone come in and shut off our electric or our gas or our we kept gas usually. We needed that to be alive, but yeah. the our water would get cut off sometimes, and we'd have to go over to grandma's. Um, 
Hmm. And so I went back in and 10 minutes later, my dad had registered me for church um, and I didn't want to go. And his motives were likely to get me off the house so they could be doing drugs. Whenever I was gone, it was a yeah. prime opportunity to do it. Not that me being there stopped them from doing it, but hmm. it was a good opportunity for them to get me out. And it was just good for me to get outside because I didn't really have, I had friends, but it was very shallow. And um, we, I never went and spent nights over at people's houses or anything. It wasn't close to my cousins. Hmm. So I went to Bible school defiantly and I determined I'm going to get myself kicked out. And so what I decided to do is I went into the middle of the sanctuary. Um, I don't know if you, you've probably never been to in our sanctuary before, but it's really small. Um, the, and sorry, I, th I think I might have been, if it's still the one that back in 2010 or something, I was there once. Yeah, yeah. sure. It would be the same. And, okay. um, so I, I ran into the middle of the sanctuary and I just started blurting out every cuss word I could think of. Hmm. Um, and my poor group leader, same with Sean, he, he's just sitting there like, what am I supposed to do? Like, he's probably new. He's not local to York. We used to have people, back then, VBS was a, a lodging event. Like, we lodged 30 people from everywhere, and they would come into York and do ministry. So he was, he was um, you know, I was a piranha, and, and I was just taking advantage of him. And my goal was to get kicked out. So he starts walking me back, has me by the arm. Um and Jonathan, who was the director, who had invited me earlier, stopped him and, and looked at me, looked at him. I looked at them, you know, it was sort of this um, standoff of who's, what's going to happen. And hmm. Jonathan had Sean take me back and sit me down again. Now, I was completely, I, I had no idea why. And I was frustrated because, you know, I was trying to get my way and, you know, acting like a fool will usually get you your way if you want to get kicked out or, yeah. you know, Oh, um, I went upstairs. I got kicked out that night anyway, cause he couldn't follow me around and protect me from, I guess myself. Um, yeah. but then I went home and thought, okay, I must be done. It must be over. And the, uh, what I tell people when I speak is that, you know, men and I just are stubborn, you know? So they came back, um, the next day in their van and picked me up. Instead of having me on a walking route, they figured if they picked me up this time, I'd be more motivated and enjoy it more. I was a big boy. So they figured that maybe I just wasn't comfortable. Maybe I need a second chance. And um, so that kept going. I kept getting kicked out. And then at the end of the week, I had um, an experience that I don't have time to explain. But basically through games and snack and we didn't have a lesson that night but there was just a lighter atmosphere of Keyshawn we like you Keyshawn we want you instead mm -hmm. of Keyshawn come in and hear our bible hear our stories get in line sit down do what we say and then you'll get a snack at the end um these Mennonite snacks aren't good I mean I like them now but at the time <laughs> mentee pretzels wasn't a reward um it was Nobody liked it. So uh, that wasn't enough. The enticement of we're going to reward you at the end wasn't worth it to me. It was to the rest of the people um, that came, but it wasn't to me. But that closing picnic, which I had no business being on, um, supposed to be a reward, um, opened up my eyes a little bit to see that maybe maybe I am treating them unfairly. Maybe, maybe they aren't just bad white people. Um, but then there was no closure. 
um, I went home and it was all over. We had no contact after that until about a month later, they came to pick me up for the weekly program. And um, this is where it speeds up a bit. And that's where I, I would elaborate um, at a church service. But yeah. um, I had a, my first lesson without trust. And um, I, I basically through listening caught on that, you know, Christianity isn't just for white people. Um, and it might actually be possible that through commitment, I could become one, hmm. but I wasn't interested. I knew that it was possible now, but I, I wasn't exactly interested, but it was clear that these teachers truly cared about me. And I, I, I almost, it was almost a, a part of spite for me. Like you have no right to care about me. You have no right to, to pretend you can actually help me. And so I resisted it for a while. Um, it was too good to be true. And I felt like they're just going to end up hurting me anyway. So I'm going to keep them at a distance. So for, for, for several months, I was getting kicked out, coming in, causing problems. But eventually my outlook did change because that's what love does. You know, if you, if you are truly exemplifying Jesus and you are truly teaching Jesus um, uh, over a course of time, if, if the person is, I guess, force-fed in my situation, um, a lot can happen in that time. Now, ultimately, I still have free will and choice, but, I mean, if I'm in there learning about Jesus, how could I not be captivated? Jesus is amazing. And, mm -hmm. and uh, one thing I always appreciated about that, that I haven't noticed as much now, not to throw our program under the bus, because what's happening is still awesome. But when I give advice to Bible school teachers, I tell them this next year, cut out whatever theme you were going to do and focus on Jesus. Hmm. Now, obviously every year won't be the life of Jesus, right? I mean, it'll vary, hmm. but always tie it back to Jesus because that is the way, the truth, and the life. That is what truly will bring change. Moses, the story of Moses is interesting, but without God, it's nothing. And so we need to go to the source the bread of life. And so I was beginning to, I, the, the name Jesus wasn't sticking, but the concept of Jesus was. Yeah. We're following an example of kindness. And who doesn't like kindness? Even atheists wouldn't, wouldn't appreciate you going around hurting people on purpose. So, or at least most of them, um, you know, people in general want to be kind, want people to be kind. And, um, so anyway, yeah. I was enticed by Jesus and it wasn't until, so what ended up happening when that happened is I began to protect the teachers and it, the kids would come in and make fun of these teachers and I would punch them in the face because I was, these people care about us and you're ruining it, you know, and I was still getting kicked out, but it was for different motives and intentions. Um, my intentions and motives were beginning to purify even though my applications were were uh, less than good um and then austin austin my brother today um shank right. um if I, say, if I say the name people will hit a light bulb clayton shank's son yeah um are my family today you know if you go to my facebook you'll see pictures of them and oh okay um you know they're a a, a second family for me and um mm -hmm. 
actually took me into their home. But before that, three several years before that, Austin, he was only 16 years old, came and invited me into his home. And this is going to flesh out more later in this podcast, so I won't spend too much time on it. But okay. basically, I reluctantly went and experienced a family functioning in a Christian way. They loved each other, um, and they took me in uh, and made me a part of their chaos. You know, the Shank family is bizarre and crazy and loud. And, um, you know, I've always told them that they, they eat loud. You know, they chew loud and they their spoon hits the plate loud. And, you know, in my house, it was based on fear. And you didn't want to do anything that made you stick out. But in their house, sticking out is comfortable because we have nothing to fear. We're, we're in Jesus. And that I left that night with so much changed in my life, just from observing and being a part of a meal wow. with a Christian family, that that was the spark that, that set off the rest of my conversion experience. Wow. All this, all this, all these years of Bible school fell short to an example of godliness in a context that I live in every day in a home. And, and one of the weaknesses with the Bible school program or kids club or whatever is you're putting them in a context that they don't normally live in and you're giving them an oasis or a paradise that they don't always really enjoy anyway. And then they go back home to their context and there's no way to apply it. Um, Christian maturity is hard to apply now. And we've been living this for what, 10, 20 years. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so it's at them and we're like, take Jesus into your heart. Okay. And I'll go home and do it. And they're like, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, Austin committed his life to me to helping me walk through the process of living a Christ-like a Christ-like life wow. um, in the city of York. Um, so he he started out, and this is maybe an encouragement to young Mennonite men or women who feel they lack the experience or wisdom, because truthfully they do lack the experience and wisdom. Um, and you can be 25 and lack it too. I mean, people come into York mm -hmm. any age and they come in a baby in, in terms of how to engage the culture well. But um, Austin didn't have good lessons. Um, his lessons were terrible. Um, he gave lessons based off of Ray Comfort tutorials and um, they just weren't good. They weren't, they weren't hitting home. And what, what did hit me was the love and relationship that he was offering. Hmm. Um, Austin's a crazy guy. He was super crazy back then. He got married since then and kind of normaled out. But there was nothing about Austin that was like me. We were opposites. Um, it was what united us was Jesus. My interest for Jesus and his owner and his his um, possession of Christ. Um, it was not not a transaction, but we both brought something to the relationship yeah it's called discipleship that's what discipleship is supposed to be um so i became a christian when i was 13 i got baptized and joined the church um most mostly because i had prayed for my dad to survive a surgery he wasn't supposed to survive um he had been for his fifth open heart surgery and um uh. you know heart surgeries is a it, it just doesn't happen. You know, by that point, the doctors give up and say it's just not going to work. And they had all failed up to that point. But he was actually dying in the um, surgery room. 
and um, I was praying for him to be revived. And I told God, and it's not good to make deals with God in this way, I guess, but it was a, an honest attempt at, at pursuing him. Hmm. Um, if, you, if you save him and if you make, keep him alive, I will win him for you. Um, and before I do that, I will obviously choose to follow you. And um, I'll devote my life to winning my family for you and winning others for you. Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm a teacher. It was immediately in my mind, I thought, what's the quickest way into the hearts of our genera- the next generation? It's through education. Hmm. Um, and so, but in that moment, um, seeing that miracle, seeing him brought back to life, another, another six, seven, eight years, um, showed me that um, God can bring the dead back to life. And then I read in the Bible, that was no longer just this book of archaic and weird stories. Um, I looked in the book of Matthew and saw that God had actually done that before. Wow. Um, it brought people back to life before. And, and the book of Matthew has is really the, I believe, the staple of Christian life and any of the Gospels. But um, Matthew was what I what I went to first. And mm-hmm. then to be challenged by our bishop and by our leadership. If you're going to be baptized into our church, um, your your mission in life is to follow the example of Jesus. Um, that felt doable. That felt worth it. And you know, if I can, if I can have Jesus, then anything in my life, anything in the way, uh, will fall short to to that. And so far, that's how it's worked. Um, God has been powerful than every evil or sadness in my life. Um, and so then, you know, long story short, I three years later joined the school, my junior year. Um, I wanted to be in a Christian environment and discovered when I went to school that I wasn't actually a great example. And when called to be godly, I, I failed to do so. Um, and so the double life I was living had to shut down, and that happened during that year. Um and then I committed to my mom that if I'm going to go to Times of Peace, I have to go to college. So that's where faith builders came into discussion. Hmm. Um, my mom was an accountant, you know, most of her life. She went to college and made money that way. Um, she, she kept getting fired because she kept stealing money for drugs. But she was college educated and she wanted me to go to college. And so um, I started doing fundraisers to make money to go to faith builders. And then faith builders wrote me a letter accepting my scholarship a full ride to fb um i don't even know if they offer full rides anymore but um i went there almost completely paid um with on the bank from the fundraisers to continue education i still have some money today to just continue um being better educated to serve our school and things like that um things like learning piano or spanish that are hard to do yeah. Hopefully I get that someday. Um, so then I went to Faith Builders to prepare to be a teacher and um, encountered some double standards in my life that even after graduating, I had to go back and repent and fix. Um, my time there, really what it did for me is it solidified my theological belief in God. I had, I had the faith and I had 100% belief in my heart that God was real and he wanted me but I couldn't prove it to others. I couldn't pass it on because it was just come feel what I'm feeling. 
and that's the that's this 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 um the scheme or the sales pitch of every belief in the world today um if only you knew what i experienced and that's such an empty it's, it's an incomplete way to share anything because mm-hmm. what ended up happening is people gave up on that so now they're saying i'm the way i am you be the way you are and, and just stay out of my you don't even have i don't even want you to know what i know and i'm like how can you be a christian and not want people to have to know Jesus. Like that's impossible. You have to want people to experience what you're experiencing. Yeah. Um, and that's why I never took any interest in Islam or any other religious thing, because a lot of those, it felt like um, it was under the, the grip of postmodernism and believe what you want. And um, I'm going to continue to believe what I think. And, I know you're all going to hell, but I don't care. And I'm like, how can you not care? If you really believe this, how can you not be moved to compassionate work? Um, and so FB really um, laid out a foundation. You know, there, there's a class there about anabaptism. And here I was, a city kid who was tolerating anabaptism just to be here, just to feel that love. And clearly, the anabaptists have it wrong but they have Jesus in a way that I don't see anywhere else I'm going to stay. And that, and I no longer say it that way. I no longer am at a point where I'm simply intoler- intolerance for, for the people around me. I now, I don't know if embrace is the right word, but I see the value and proclaim that value as a benefit to my life. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people say I drank the Kool-Aid of FB, but I'm really glad I did because it, it really has improved my Christianity and improved my walk with God. Um, and I think that that's what a culture should do. All yeah. cultures should encourage us to godliness. Um, that's what it should be. And that's what brotherhood should look like. And uh, yeah, now I've been teaching for three years. It's my fourth year on staff. I did a, um, I skipped a year in my testimony. I did a, uh, a year of being on assistant a teacher's aide before okay. faith builders because I graduated a year early. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's my fourth year on staff here, and uh, that's hopefully reveal some of sort of the motivation as to why I do what I do. I want people, you know, my my students to be able to to find Jesus yeah. and and see a power in their life that is worth giving their life to, and yeah. letting them see where that takes them. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, it's fascinating to me that, so if I under, if I'm hearing you correctly, your dad was dying. You had not yet personally committed to Jesus, but Mm -hmm. in a prayer to save your dad was kind of that commitment or that opening up. Is that correct? How that went? Yeah. I, I, I described it before as basically I had died. I had killed off everything that I belonged to, everything I protected. Um, I think I even said verbatim, I'll give up football, which was my God at that time. Wow. I mean, yeah. football was, and in a smaller sense, it's a big deal to me today, a much smaller mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I played football uh, at the time and, you know, I, I just said, whatever there is in my life that you have to get rid of in order for me to be like you Hmm. and take it. His answer was basically all of it. I mean, everything had to be under, under the blood. Everything had to be crucified and Mm -hmm. everything had to be given up. And I, I said, yes, it didn't take me long at all. Um, 
And so, yeah, I don't think that I was um, a Christian going into it. I think that, um, and I don't think I became, immediately became a Christian right then. I think that it was a, um, a, a sign of God saying, yes, I am, I am the creator of the universe. I can mm-hmm. start and end it on a snap of my finger, and I do want you. And that, to me, was captivating. The creator of the universe yeah. wants me. Like, wow. how could I say no? Like, yeah. that's like, um, so, so yeah. And then from there, I I started asking serious questions, and and the Shank family was always always present um, in ways other people could not be. Yeah, the, the philosophy of their home made it possible. You know, anybody for a long time we didn't even we didn't even lock our car doors or house door, house at all. I mean, people could walk in and come and talk to us whenever they wanted, and. You know, if you're a teacher for a while, you realize how destructive that atmosphere can be because you've got stuff you have to get done. But yeah. um, that is how the house is to this day. We have family gatherings and people may pop up and spend hours at a time with us. And none of us are groaning or bemoaning this presence of this outsider because we don't have outsiders. We, we are we – are, um, there's so much love in that in the family. and. Yeah. They were they were um, always open to me coming around, except Monday nights because that was family night. That's the one night I wasn't allowed over until I became a part of the family. But I was over at the Shank house three or four times a week, and um, you know a lot of families wouldn't let that kind of thing happen. I was a dangerous person. I I was involved in so many bad things at a young age, and um, could have easily influenced other people to to help me get even further into it or join me in it. Yeah. Um, but they had no fear. There was never an ounce of fear present that I could see. Yeah. Um, it was completely about let's love him and open up our home. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, w- I want to ask a question back a little bit and then I'd love to move into that, the <laughs> whole conversation of how the shanks related with you. But for like, what, after your dad was was um, healed and and was no longer dying, was there a conscious part where you thought about like, well, thanks God, maybe not, or was it just kind of an automatic like, wow, you did this? Of course, I'm giving my life to you. Does that question make sense? Right. So you're saying right after he he was brought back, right after he was. Yeah, like, did you, was that just seeing his healing just kind of automatically was the clincher for you? Or was there a season of processing, okay, am I real about this? Am I actually going to do what I said I would do? Well, I would say that most of, most of my um, waiting in that process, it might have been a year or so, a year up until I actually got baptized. Part of that is just Mennonites. You know, we don't baptize right away. And um, we're not going to get into that <laughs> this podcast. But, um, you know, I had to wait in a official way. But also I had asked myself, um, aside from the examples I was shown, although there were clear examples of Christ-likeness around me, um, for me to die for Christ is a serious, serious concept. Like that – that idea of death to me has always been a, a very radical and 
and life changing and life losing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea of I'm going to lose everything that I care about and give it completely to him. I read, I read the book of Job and I got terrified. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, so God is full of wrath and God is full of, um, God could throw my life away to the dogs. And I, and I would have to say, praise the Lord. And, and, um, and although I would be able to ask him why I might not even get an answer. And so I really want something like that. You know, do I really want maybe going out wasn't that bad if, if I can live with my own, my own will intact. And, um, it, it was clear to me though, that I was going to be happier surrendered to him than fighting him. And it wasn't a, okay, God, you win. It was a, God, I accept you. And I think that's how Christianity right. should begin. Not a tired of frustration. I mean, obviously, if you come to know Christ, uh, we've been given enough parables to indicate we shouldn't judge how people become Christians um, or when they become Christians. But I, I feel like I was genuinely committed to Christ at that time but needed to um, needed to know more about him. So I knew how to commit, you know, um, it's okay to, to pray and surrender first and then ask questions later. I don't think it's wrong to pursue the scriptures first and then make an informed decision. Um, now, if you're pursuing that for 20 years, you're, you're just, the time for salvation is now, um, you know, you need to be, um, you need to come to Christ now. You know not when He's going to come back. And but I took a year to um, and mind you, the difference in maturity from the age of thirteen to twelve was very different. Yeah. Um, I I had a sort of childlike awe for God that slowly turned into a eventually a cynicism and then eventually an appreciation. Mm -hmm. um, all in that year, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And then sat in front of the, the leader and um, his, I went in thinking that I would have to give up on my TV and give up on my clothes. And I'd already given that stuff up. So we didn't even have to talk about that. We talked about was, are you wholly invested and trusting Jesus? And, and um, I was like, yes, I, that's why I'm here. And he said, praise the Lord. And our meeting was basically over. From that point on, it was about how not to look like you peed your pants at your baptism. You know, it was, it was clear the whole reason I'm doing this is to commit myself to Christ. And, and um, that happened in my heart in that moment, but it was solidified through me proclaiming to the whole world. And I went to a high school of 1,500 students and I knew a lot of them. A lot of them knew of me. And um, I came into school a Christian and realizing that I was in a minority, um, I, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm dead to what I was. And so if people don't like that or I get persecuted for that, then then um, it's worth it. Wow. It's worth to be a Christian. Right. I... The reason I asked that, like, what was your process in thinking through that is because um, something I have noticed here in, in our ministry is that th these people do process at a deeper level than I did. Um, I grew up in, the, in a Christian home. I grew up familiar with God, 
but uh, even more like becoming a Christian was kind of what our family did. And, and so it was, it was like that, that commitment came pretty quickly without a whole lot of thought. And then later in life, I bump into and flesh out, like, am I actually serious about this? Um, and I just, I find, I think it's, I think it's helpful or key for us to remember who grew up in that, in this atmosphere that, that people who didn't are probably thinking about it at a deeper level. Um, and then you, you touched on right here at the end, because this is something we bump, we work primarily with, um, Spanish people, uh, from various different countries. The majority is from Mexico, but some from, uh, Guatemala and, uh, El Salvador and other South American, Central American countries. And, the the whole concept of God being a white God and and even um, well I think it's safe to say that de, as you've alluded to quite a bit in your story that when you're developing relationships people can see past that or they they don't even I'm not sure if I've had conversations deep enough yet to see like before their acceptance of God, did they see it as just a white man's God? But something I know is even after they become a believer, they wrestle with feeling, later on, they wrestle with feeling different and how do they fit in? Is this, is Christian, is, is Christianity, the church, something they can, um, they can do or is it, and I'm not sure always what is, what is just plain cultural difference? What is racial? The fact that it's a lot large portion white people and what is like the way Anabaptists do church or um, can you identify with that struggle and, and what, what thoughts or perspectives do you have on that? This is a good time to pause. I have to get my charger on my laptop. Yeah. I have an answer. But yeah, go for it. Get my charger. Yeah, I I got to a stage one time where I wondered why me, like why am I still here? And you know, I've been a part of our church for almost ten years now, and um, why why have I stayed and everybody else has left? You know, we've had people baptized in our church that are Hispanic, and we've had people of color come in our church, and most of them leave bitter and upset. And like, why? Have I just um, have I sold out? You know, that's one thing that I, that you often get accused of if you're at a mostly white church like I am. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a sellout, and so I wondered, did I am I a sellout? And what comforted me is that yes, I'm a sellout, but not to people, mm-hmm. not to the people in the church. Um, when I come to church on Sunday, and this is this is theoretical, and, and living it out is hard. Living, I mean, I my mom Mary Lois might listen to to this uh, Clayton's wife, and she knows the struggles I've had with this. And you know, it, it's it's not been easy for me to live, but um, it it is also true that that's the biggest thing I'm secure in is that um, above all, we're all united through Jesus, and 
I've thought before, why don't I just take what I know of Jesus and take, um, you know, he truly is enough. So why don't I just go to Shiloh Baptist down the street that's all black hmm. and be somewhere where I'm more comfortable. And I believe, honestly, Asher, I would be more comfortable there. And that might seem controversial, hmm. but in terms of the atmosphere, I would enjoy that more. Um but I don't go to church just for the atmosphere. Um, this is my family. And I, I, I liken it to any young person who struggles to appreciate their family. Um, and I don't struggle as much as maybe they might, but it, it's a struggle sometimes. I struggle to appreciate a culture that is full of people who don't look like me or come from where I come from. Um but ultimately, God asked me to kill that. God asked me to no longer pledge allegiance to to where where what circumstances I grew up in. Um, and just because they don't understand um, doesn't mean that they don't care about me and love me. Mm-hmm. Now, that lack of understanding is going to cause lots of pain. And from there, I think the only answer for that is Jesus, because... If the Mennonite church, if, the, if solving the problem of monogamy was was just to make the church less hurtful and more sensitive, uh, then we would have, it'd be pretty easy. I mean, we could, I'd devote my speaking engagements to setting people straight and helping them understand white privilege and stuff like that. Um, and stuff like that's important to discuss, but not as important as when we're discipling, are we pointing to Christ? Are we, are we, are we offering the source of hope that will actually help? Or are we offering simple material? Are we offering general good, goodwill and good deeds? Um, you know, faith without works is dead, but so is works without faith. I mean, we can't just do good works to suffice the teachings of God. We, we have to have, true belief that what we're passing on will truly change lives. And I even wondered at some point, do Mennonites really believe that Jesus could actually save people like me? Because if they did believe, why aren't they here? Why aren't they, why aren't we flooding the cities full of people and pursuing them? Um, If we really believed that Jesus would do what we say we think he believes, we would be doing more. We would be, we would take that as a a um, a wonderful opportunity to pursue and and behave like Jesus, you know, um, feeding the poor, bringing them into our homes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're very guilty, and part of this is hypocrisy. And I'm saying it in a it's not the, the classic move is it's not just Mennonites, and that's true, but. There is a bit of hypocrisy in us saying that we obey the Sermon on the Mount. We we obey the entire book. You know, we don't ignore that. Um, but then the parts where Jesus tells us to um, invite the poor into our homes and not just invite the rich and not just – most of us would freely admit that we're rich, right? I mean, we're – because of mis- all the missions in our churches, you know, we're convinced that we're – we're, we're the higher percentage, and we are, granted. Um, if that's true, then if I invite you over to my house for a meal, um, that's that's legitimate, but I am inviting the rich. And if I only ever invite you over to my house, 
then I'm disobeying a scripture. I'm disobeying a call to also invite the poor. What I think is perfect is when I invite you and the poor. And, and you should show up and say, wonderful, like, this is amazing. We'll have a great conversation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll be loving them and preaching the word and um, showing Jesus. And I don't see that present in Mennonites. Hmm. Um, and, and that, to me, when they, be, when they encounter those, those hypocrisies, we expect them to be forgiving and graceful. We expect them to be able to put up with that and and be patient. But when encountered with that type of challenge, what do we do with it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, knowing that we're rich, knowing that we're simply mingling on an island together, um, which is not every Mennonite church, but a lot of them are that way. Um, and just because you're in a city doesn't mean you're, you're any, you might be different because of where you are, but you can live in a city and, and just mingle among each yeah. other too. Um, they don't want to be around the poor because they, they're draining and they're not, they smell bad. And I think Jesus spent far too much time cursing that type of mindset for us to live in that freely. Um, so sometimes converts come into the church and they're not seeing in the church what the Bible actually says. And, um, Sometimes disillusionment, like going to Acts and saying we're going to be an Acts church when we're not in the time of Acts and we're not in the in the same culture as Acts. Yeah. But what we do, what we cannot dispute, and that's disputable. But what is not disputable is we were called to follow the example that Jesus gave us, and these things that He said are not suggestions; they are commandments. Mm-hmm. They are things for us to do. And if we're not doing them, nothing in the world can defend that. Not not that we're married and have too many kids to care for. Not that we're single and don't have the resources. Not that we're in the country and don't live around each other. There's not a single excuse in the world to justify us ignoring what Jesus told us to do in Matthew. And so I, I grew up going to conferences where Mennonites would say, um, you have to be wary of the Jehovah's Witnesses because they ignore things in the book of Matthew. You have to be wary of the, the Presbyterians because they're ignoring Be wary of the Catholics because they're adding on things mm-hmm. to the book of Matthew. And, and, and I sat there and I looked at, we have to be wary of ourselves because we're not following the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. We're not listening. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely things that we're, we trademark, non-resistance, things that are that are in the book of Matthew that we, we do follow. Yeah. And that's great. Um, but there are things that we ignore yeah. and, um, in order to follow them, we have to, we have to kill all of what we feel safe in. We have to get rid of the, the fear of protecting our families and allow, um, poor people who we don't know and don't trust yet, um, in for a meal. Um, that type of stuff would, would completely battle the culture that we're, we have. Yeah. And I think that we often see what people might bringing people in. And, and I, I'm not super big on making, changing the church service to make it more accessible. Although I would admit that there'd be ways that I would do it if I were in charge. Mm-hmm. Since I'm not, I don't dwell on that. I, I, I say we can we can access and reach them outside of Sunday. It's not a big deal. Um, but 
And, and, and if I have a, a kid that goes to church somewhere else on Sunday, I praise the Lord for that. And, and um, God is blessing me with the time that I have with them. And I don't have to, to throw my, shake my fist in the air because they can't join me on Sunday because they don't like the hymns. You know, um, life is comp- complex and we have to live in light of that and focus on what's actually important. Um, and here I am babbling and losing my train of thought. No, but it's good. The, 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 gist, the gist of why I believe that, um, that's the, the second point is hypocrisy. We, if you really step back as a, as an, what I used to be as an onlooker instead of actually someone in, and now that I've lived it and experienced it, and you know, I haven't paid for any of my cars, Asher. I've had three cars. Aww. I haven't paid for a single one. Aww. And it's because I'm a Mennonite. It's because I had people who love me. <laughs> and that type of thing can threaten virtues that I would have if I did not rely on that type of stuff. And our riches, the Bible tells us our riches are a threat. Our riches are a, are a threat to godliness, and we have not believed the gospel. And that's only one of several things that I think that people begin to see. We preach that it's wrong to love money, but we love money. Yeah. And, and so there's so many things that we, we have unfortunately justified. Um, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I have it and the rest of the church is just, I've put up, I mean, we're all living in the constant hypocrisy of our lives and that we, we want perfection, but our actions are not perfect. Um, and our, our sinful nature pulls us into mistakes. Um, but the hypocrisy can sometimes threaten. And, and sometimes the hypocrisy goes beyond the Bible. Sometimes it actually pulls into um, political debates. Or the, the, one of the issues with politics is that it's easy to be proved wrong. Like, if you you can have a an opinion, and then I can throw 100 statistics at you that prove you're wrong. And then you'll, you'll shake your head and be like, oh, man, I, be- I better load back up and come back with bigger weapons. Yeah. So you get your hundred statistics and you come back ready to fight back. And um, sometimes I laugh at how much time is in between Facebook comments, yeah. you know, and just how long, how much, and how thorough and, and uh, thought through this debate is. And, and I'm, you know, the problem with politics is we begin to say things and, and mean things that aren't as significant as the scriptures become more important. And, and what I've seen it do is Mennonites say things that um, in debate or in proclamation, you know, things about welfare or stuff like that. And it hurts people and it, and it, it causes harm and they're able to shake it off and go to sleep at night. But what it did is, is stumble people. It's, and whether or not we feel like it's all moral uh, or it's, not wrong to have a stance on this if we're harming others or if we're clouding the gospel message we're we have a responsibility to to focus on things that are important like faith and love and um so it feels to me like you know nowadays when i encounter uh what i think are whether they be racist or prejudicial uh, views on people who I grew up with or 
you know, urban cities or whatever statistics you want to throw out. Um, I, I do just ignore most times. I do just say, you know, uh, I have, don't need to defend that. I don't need to, but there is a concept of the scriptures are clear to us that we lay down our lives when we're smacked in the face, we turn into a cheek. When we are confronted with evil, the guns to our head, we don't respond with a gun. You know, we, we lay down our lives and trust Jesus, but it also tells us to defend the rights of others. And I've always wondered what that looks like in the Mennonite church and what ways are we actually doing that? And I, and I honestly can't name one. I can't name an example in which we as a, as a, a Mennonite culture are defending the rights of people who, who we wish would come into our church. And, and so I, uh, I'm not ready to go picket, picket line and, you know, outside the white house, but, um, it, it does make me wonder, we probably err more on the side of criticism and judgment, but I think a greater weapon, a, a larger sword is, is um, and this can sound very liberal and very postmodern, but it's true. It's just not, it's, it's, in, it's in the scriptures, is love and service. And our business should be loving and serving not instructing and correcting and, and, and so that, yes, instruction will come, yeah. but I find that the most effective instruction in my life has come after somebody served me. Um, wow. you know, if, if wow. they, um, came out and helped me do my homework and, and then I'm much more open to, you know, they're investing they They love me there. It's not just this filling their quota or fitting their conscience. Um, or, you know, attacking me because I'm evil, you know, that type of stuff. But they actually genuinely love me and and seriously want to see me have Jesus. And that's not the message that I think many people get when our focus is so worldly and political. And, um, you know, it's, it's important that we... We do have a, I think it's important, although I don't think it's wrong to not, to have some eyes on what's happening in the world. One of our, uh, our theme for our school is focus global servants. And so global, in order for us to be global, we have to, we have to engage the news. We have to know what's happening in the world. And, and so of course we're going to get involved in political things because that's what reading an article is taking on propaganda. And that's, that's a serious thing, um, but we um, we do so with caution, learning to love better, and not learning how to debate better or how to how to can how to further identify problems that exist in urban cultures um, or in d- different eth- ethnic culture. Um, we we are investing our people are investing their lives into better knowing how to call out problems than actually serve and meet the issues themselves. And and that's, again, another form of hypocrisy that is both scriptural and political that immediately leaves bad taste in the mouth of anyone who could be a convert and makes them want nothing to do with anybody who is a white Mennonite. And 
thankfully, Jesus is more powerful than that. But we um, we have to realize how much we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we when we behave that way. When we we joke around about the silliness of these liberals and that type of thing is, or the other way around for that matter, <laughs> it's growing in size, the amount of liberal Mennonite people <laughs> that, that think conservatives are dumb. And we, we have to do neither. We have to look at the book of Matthew and say, what things in here are, are going to win the world and, and, and not win the world, but are going to, yield the results that are effective. I do believe that a 100% honest Christian um, will probably not be on welfare. Um, I say probably because there may be some situations where they are, but if they have the means to work, they will go out and do it if they have the mindset to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, What I do not believe is that means we should just see evil in their lives and see them as, you know, I grew up as a welfare baby. And even just several years ago, my mom finally got stopped getting food stamps for me, you know, and um, it's, we are, we are judging instead of helping. And a workshop recently at a conference about financial cultures. And what I implore them to do is simply Find ways to love and serve and not analyze and identify the techniques that help them better attack welfare. Um, If anything, us going in and doing what Matthew tells us to do um, will help us disable the welfare system. You know, if we were actually, as the church, feeding the poor, the government wouldn't have to feed the poor. And, And I get that it's unrealistic to think that we could replace the government. But that should be our mindset. Our mindset is to win the world for Christ. Our mindset, we know that's not going to happen. We know that the world's not, there are a lot of people, millions of people every year are going to hell. But we we shoot to serve and love because that's our job. That's our, our calling is to behave that way. And instead, we say things that may or may not be racist, and that's hard to identify and, and you know qualify or whatever. Yeah. But at the very least, is a waste of our yeah. time is a waste of our time and um, is clouding the true purpose of our existence, yeah. um, which is to serve, to one, love God, glorify him, and to the people around us to serve yeah. others, to think, to think of them higher than ourselves. Yeah. And how can you think of that, that poor black person in, in the city of York as higher than yourself if most of what you say about them is negative? Yeah. How can you do both? You know, and and so it's clear you have to choose. Am I going to be a merciful, loving servant of Christ and and engage the world in a for Christ and and let God lead me, or am I going to focus on finding reasons why I shouldn't? And I think that our culture has been raising people to find reasons not to not to love instead of to love. And and I don't think, again, before it happens, it's not just the Mennonite problem, but it's it's our as Christians problem to fix. Yeah. It's our responsibility to to surrender ourselves and die to the flesh, die to the vices that keep us from sharing Christ. And we make we make the church accessible by being a family and being yeah. united. One thing I want to say here before 
the topic changes is um, another reason why people have trouble um, acclimating is a word that I often use um, is Mennonites are higher are, are big on families mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, and you would mention that you would sort ha- sort of committed to God before you even really were sure you wanted to or that's a very that's a unintended consequence of being in the type of culture that we are and doing it the way we do it. Um, there's also benefits, but um, what what happens for a guy like me is I come in, I am enticed by the by the work of God and become a Christian, and then I go home to a hellish home mm-hmm. and I'm alone without the church without anybody even the shanks couldn't save me so i moved in with them i didn't move in with them when i grew when i went to high school but before that i was a christian with no family structure of christian people um i had grown in the biblical sense to hate my mother and father and choose christ and um you know if he had come back if jesus had come back he would have separated me from my mother and father and i would be his but he would not be and that was the primary burden in my heart up to up to my dad's death and currently my mom um was to see them know christ but it wasn't for everybody else and now obviously i can't hold that against them they have their own lives sure that's fair but what's also true is um if i had a strong christian mennonite family they would be walking alongside me, helping me through that. So the answer to that is not adopt every new convert. Um, that's uh, That would be good. That'd be great. But that's not necessarily the answer. The answer is – I'm going to lose it. <laughs> the answer is not to adopt every new convert. Oh, the, the answer is to is to unify the church as a family. Mm-hmm. Let the church be the family. Let that be the strongest institution in the church, so it is accessible to the random person on the street who is involved in drugs or whatever. Because we are now unified primarily in Christ, which is undoubtedly how it's supposed to be. First Christ, then everything yeah. else. Um, God, God would have never put anything before Christ. God, God would have never put anything, whether it be family, money, work church government um, church positions nothing is before christ and we're not, we need to live functionally that way that the most important thing is is christ unifying yeah. us if that's truly how it is then it's a hundred percent more accessible because you're coming in to receive christ and live with other christ followers but so right now the way it is is you're coming in hopefully getting Christ, not always, because sometimes it's not the focus, and and then you're going and living about your life and meeting on Sunday. And Mennonites kind of function that way because they've got family to one another. They've got family to be brothers and sisters with. They've got large families usually, or cousins or close friends in their youth group. But these new converts don't have those things, and they're not going to have ever, and you can't manufacture it either. It's not something that you can just, sure, we can have a plan, but you're never going to be able to solve it completely. Um, but we have to recognize it and be very wary of the fact that because we're a family culture, they have to join a family. 
And if we're not going to adopt them into a family to disciple them, we need to, as a church, disciple them. We need to, as a church, be a family. And when you, I've observed very few churches where this is the model, that we are one unified family. I think I go to one where we're, we're, we're at a good place, where we could, we're, thankfully, we're not all complacent. But um, I feel like I have an environment, based on what my friends have told me about their churches, that that exemplifies this model, that when you come into the family, you're joining the family of God. And although you may not be my son or my, you know, my close relative, we may not have share the same um, talents or likes. Now I don't like to hunt. I don't care about cars. I don't like the Mennonite things, Mm -hmm. Um, but we have Jesus and that is more than enough. Let's get that together. Then of course I'm gonna I'm gonna be yeah. fine because I have Jesus. Yeah. Um, I can't leave bitter and disappointed and malicious towards the Mennonites because I have Jesus. Mm. I can't because they have Jesus too. I have Jesus. At the worst, we leave on good terms, and that's not going to happen for me um, because here is a family of Christ followers who who genuinely care about each other who solve issues together. Tonight I'm going to a men's meeting where we sit down as brothers and we talk about the things in our church and how we can better support each other. I mean, it's, it, it is, it is priceless, absolutely priceless to live in brother, brotherly community. Yeah. And we, we don't value it enough. And it's truth. It's truly the, one of the biggest things that kept me here in the church is here goes a, a army of a hundred people that all love Christ and all love me. What more do I need? Maybe a loving family. That'll happen later. You know, I mean, it's, I've got the family I need and now anything beyond this is a blessing. And, and some people chase and pursue forever the, be, the, the blessing of a church family. They don't know it. They don't know that you're missing it, but having someone to sit down with you and sharpen you, and love you and be interested in your life in the most important facets of your life is something that some of these young converts are never getting. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. the, the answer is not a quick, let's change our, let's change our outlook and apply it a little differently. Yeah. It's actually changing the way we yeah. do church. Um, and I think it's high time that we do. I think it is time for us to put a bigger, a greater focus on, um, the, the, the family unit all together in church. Um, we do something called fellowship activities at our church. Um, I actually started them. We had a youth group, but, you know, there's several reasons why that wasn't working out. One, because we didn't have any youth, but two, because there were some people in our church that didn't like the concept of youth getting together and partying all the time. And frankly, I didn't either. Um, I wanted to involve the high school students. I wanted to bring in the poor because <laughs> I was like, that's what we're supposed to do, right? And there were some other people who felt the same way. So we started a fellowship activity instead about six years ago. And it stopped when I went to Faith Players, but we picked it back up a year ago. And the idea, that here's the mission. We're going to go over to the shop family on a Friday night or Saturday night, and we're going to do whatever they do at their house. If they have pizza Friday night, we're all having pizza Friday night. Uh, we're going to be a part of their family for that evening. Um, 
So this later this month, we're going over to our new bishop's house. Sorry, Curtin just fell. No. Um, anyway, um, we're going over to our bishop's house, and we're going to, to his barn, and he's going to do whatever he wants with us. And he has the encouragement to to treat us like family and, and use whatever he wants. There may be a time we go and split wood at the shank home. Um, and that's all we do. And we end with a meal and pray and go home. You know, we're doing what these families do. And the purpose for that, the reason why I wanted to see that happen is we are family. That's what we are. We're family and we're not acting like it. You take your tribe and you go do what you want to do. And I'll take my tribe. And and I'm, and people like me were left with nobody yeah. until the shanks came to save me. Right. And, and to me, that was wrong. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I think Christ would come down and immediately call out and say, why are you so divided among among your family and your land regions? And why aren't you more more sharing one mind? And so that's one application that we've taken to just help get our minds towards. Yeah. We are we are one in the spirit. And we if anybody's ever going to come to know Christ through us, they're going to join yeah. that body. They're going to they're going to see a culture and a a family loving each other yeah wow that is so powerful you've given so many things to to talk about to think about um i i am totally with you on the whole family unit thing as far as viewing and even and even bleeding over as you were talking earlier just the whole hospitality having having people having the poor over having the uh, orphans or the people without parents over and into our life and um, we we kind of pride ourselves as Anabaptists in being hospitable and being you know we can stay at friends places as we travel across the the states instead of staying at hotels or whatever and I don't I don't say that critically but I think you bring out I, I just say it to recognize the point that you bring out that we don't um, do as good of a job having the people over that might take a little more energy to get to know, might take a little more, um, mm-hmm. might need more from us and can't give anything in return. Um, right. and, and so I totally agree with that. And 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 then the whole aspect of family. I think something that I've noticed is that we can create the, so we're, we're discipling people and we involve them into our life, but we create a boundary because we don't want to burn ourselves out. But then at a social level with our other Mennonite friends or whatever, we we don't have that same kind of boundary. And yeah. is that something you've felt or seen? And, and well, let me be vulnerable about this and I'll try to be careful because, um, you know, one of the things that I, that's, that's, I'm, I'm strongly, it's a strong part of who I am is, um, I don't burn out with people from the city, but, missionaries who come here do and and i never it took me a while to, to see from their point of view becoming a teacher helped because then i saw why i mean there's a lot to burn out from um 
And there are, we need solitude. Solitude is an important part of our lives. I, I think that that's valid. Um, but when we are, when we, for example, if we get a knock on our door um, at the worst time possible, um, our, we often victimize ourselves. And we often say, oh man, okay. All right, I'll help you see what we can do or whatever. I'll help you tomorrow. Instead, we should be praying and saying, Lord, I, I don't have strength, but here we go. And praise the Lord. And, and I have not seen opportunity to, to, to lay our lives out for others, to against our better knowledge, against our knowledge of how much we can actually handle in a day, against, against the, um, the strength that we think we may have. God has called me and called us to something today that is greater than that. Um, giving my life, greater love have no man than to give up his life for his friends. And, and, and saying, if you need something tonight, brother, I'm going to help you do it. Um, um, and now if he's my friend, he might not always ask me every night, you know, he might give me, you know, some, he may ask someone else just to give me a break. But, um, especially with strangers though, we, when we're living in a place like York or LA, um, we are met with a lot of need and we see a lot of need. And the, the idea of burning out has always, um, intrigued me because I tend to burn out with Mennonites. I tend to, so this weekend I'm going to teach conference at Faith Builders. And that's less exciting to me right now than, than it used to be. And one of the reasons for that, and I, don't get me wrong, some of you you listen to this, I'm glad to be there. I'm glad I'm going. But um, I'm not looking forward to the hundreds of people that I may encounter that day, um, that weekend, because what truly drives me and my true passion is here. And so when I'm elsewhere, I, I kind of feel out of my place, you know. Um, I'm still happy. I'm still able to function. But this is home. You know, this is where and home involves all these people, all these students, all these this is home. This is where I want to be. And it could be that missionaries can never really experience that. But I found that there's a lot of, a lot of talks sometimes of let's just keep it to the staff or let's just keep it to the church or let's just keep it to, and I don't ever do anything exclusive. Anytime I'm planning anything. Now this is in terms of ministry or get togethers. Our family, we do keep our close family. We do have family next Although if someone comes not knowing, we will let them in the house and we will talk to them. It's not like you can't come. We just won't invite you. Um, but I, I make it a purpose to never plan anything, whether it be volleyball, basketball, whatever, uh, singing. I plan fellowship activities. So everything I plan and what can anybody can come to. Wow. And the reason I do that, and I'm not suggesting it has to be that way, I'm not pointing to a scripture to say that this is how it must be, um, is cultivating in me a desire to see, to, to never be selfish with my time, and never be selfish with with who I, who God is, what God has called me to be and what he's called me to be here. Um, it's not always fun, and it, it sometimes I think God is wrong about what, what all he thinks I can do. Um Sometimes I think he hasn't given me enough to do, and I feel like I'm not being used and I'm worthless. But that journey is a better journey to live on than I'm going to only give so much and hold back for myself yeah. this much. 
But it, it's funny that then it, you can go to a volleyball tournament and play 20 games of volleyball and still be ready to go. And your body is toast. Like you're, you're physically and even maybe emotionally you're drained, but there's something about you that just feels at home because it's what home has been. Every Saturday or every Sunday you played this game. And I'll, what if we could divert, divert that attention and that energy into loving others in, in um, our communities um, or other places? That type of commitment would change would change the whole game, would change everything. Um, and so I never want to lose my just how, how much I enjoy being around um, the people that I, I used to live yeah. like. And, but let's not be confused. The scriptures tell us to be committed to each other first. I understand. And we have to remember that our, our brothers in Christ are, is where our allegiance is. And, and the mistake of a lot of young people today is to, is to fall in love with the, the, the world that they're trying to save people from. Yeah. And I've, I've literally seen swaps, you know, where people from the city will come to know Christ. And on the way out, they see these Mennonites watching more movies and doing all this yeah. stuff. And, and they identify there's something changed about Michael. Yeah. Yeah. And I still want to be a Christian, but uh, there's something different about him. I'm not yeah. sure what it is. I've talked to kids from Reading about that and kids that up in New York. It, um, it saddens me, and I think it's a lack of focus on um, we as Christians really are energized and passionate yeah. about things that Jesus told us to do. And again, not I'm, I'm working towards that. It's where I'm, I, I want to be. Yeah. There's a... Uh, a big gap right now between where I should yeah. be and where I am in that regard. I like more more than ever. I like my solitude time. Yeah. Um, I'm still at a place where wherever the opportunity does come to to be with someone else, I'll do it. But um, more and more, I'm becoming more introverted yeah. and and less. Hey, let's go out and get people and talk yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting your comment about cha- people changing. Um, just the other night, uh, one of the we have uh, choice books out here, and we get two or three VS guys to help with that. And one of the guys recently went home, and one of the young ladies from here in LA just as as we were kind of blessing him as he goes back and um he's he's from PA she made she thanked him for not changing for her um she she talked she wow. talked about him being a brother i think talked referenced that they've had their arguments and but he has pursued her and just um loved her i yeah i i might be putting some words in her mouth here but yeah, she thanked him for not changing for her that he was who he is and and loved her just the same. And that stuck out to me because I I have seen that where we change in an attempt. I I'm not sure what all. I think some of it is because we grew up in Christian culture, we never processed who we are 
as a and and so then if you especially here in LA where it's you're far away from family and and there's not many Mennonites out here and um it's easy to come out and then be disillusioned with who I am um or sometimes we change I think to try to be more accessible or adaptable with with other people yeah yeah and I, I don't I'm not sure how effective that is you know I had someone come up to me one time I was speaking at a in Reading at um, Open Gate and a young man came up to me and said um, so I'm having an argument with one of another, another guy who was my friend was arguing with him about t-shirts yeah. and uh, you know I really don't care I, aside from my I think if you're at a church where it's a standard then you should obey the standard but I don't yeah. I don't care and but he, he came to me. One thing I do care about, though, is uh, potential reasons for doing it. And he came to me and said, don't you think that it helps me to connect better if I dress more like them? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. He's like, well, how could you say that? Like, of course it does. I'm like, well, I don't have any examples of that. Um, so far, the only effective ministry I've seen is one that is centered on Jesus and actually doesn't care about the outside appearance. Um we, we are motivated to dress differently because we love Jesus, yeah. not loving Jesus because we dress differently. And the more that we can make it clear that we're not changing the outside to make the inside yeah. better, the, the better off we'll be with commi- communicating yeah. Jesus to can us. You, can, you, can you say that one more time? Because that was really good. We are motivated to love or we are motivated to jet, dress different. Because we love Jesus. And, and the more that we change the outside to to improve the inside, the more disillusioned we are. We have to change the inside yeah. to change the outside. And and that should always be fundamental. Yeah. No matter what level of conservatism, conservatism, no matter how far you go with it, if you're going to be Eastern, be Eastern, that's fine. But if you're going to go there, never lose the fact. And if you're going to go super liberal, and I won't name a liberal conference, but uh, if you're going to if you're going to do that then make sure you either side has to hold on to the fact that the inside is changing our outside. Mm-hmm. And and so when people come to me with a question about the outside, I, I frustrate them, but my answer is always, what about the inside? Um, and if you're looking to impress them with outward appearance, you're already half, you're already behind. You're already, Satan's already ahead of you. You know, you have to realize there's a battle for the soul. There is God wanting by free will the person to choose and Satan attacking that every day and trying to pull him further and further away. Um, and we are obviously on the side of God wanting to pull people to, to Christ. And if we are focused on using outward ways to grab people into the church, then Satan is laughing. Satan's like, that's not going to actually commit people to you. That's not actually going to bring change. That's stuff that I use. I use the flesh. Satan has a grip on the flesh. Yeah. Um, God, God has a grip on the on the spirit. God, God uses that, and um, and so if we let the flesh become our means of enticing people and evangelizing, uh, yeah, this doesn't feel it doesn't feel right. Yeah, it feels like, and I think one gift, one of the gifts of the word. Is it's not a a uh, it's it's an inspired word used to instruct, and that's why I support Bible schools. 
you know, and in the grand scheme of things, I think Bible schools don't save people. Actually, I can say that 100 percent. I've never seen I have not yet seen someone become a Christian in Bible school. Now, I have seen people like me who went to Bible school and met people at Bible school who started dialogues and led to one thing or another. We have people in our school that come from Bible school and we've been able to meet with them seven hours a day and disciple them. And um, but I have not seen and we don't do revival altar calls. So maybe it's our fault for not giving an opportunity to do it. But I, by the way, I don't want us to. I'm just saying yeah. we don't. Um, and you're talking maybe. Sorry, you're talking about uh, going back to vacation Bible school, like kids Bible schools. That yeah. And, and weekly or or yearly, you know. And I just I see I've always been cynical about them, which is ironic because of the way that I became a Christian. Yeah. But but now I've a little bounced out a little more to say, you know, this Bible, this is very important. This is we need this word. We need to learn this word and live by it. And so we do need to instruct it. And so I believe the primary objective of Bible school should be to instruct the Bible, to instruct, especially what Jesus taught. And then from there, we have a, a wonderful gift of needs that will arise, um, relationships that will get very murky and tricky, um, things that we can meet outside of Thursday night and or that week, um, which is why it's I, I think there's a VBS in L.A. And I don't want to say anything that, that criticizes that. <laughs> I don't think I would try to a VBS because I want to follow up. Yeah. And, and I want to criticize anyone. But one reason why we don't do lodging VBS anymore is we want to be able to have follow up. Yeah. And we had people coming into York that we were trying to uh, shackle and make sure they didn't do anything stupid. You know, they did, you know, and those were the good days. You know, we do all kinds of crazy stuff, break curfews. And but now our focus this year was let's just handle it by the, with the church. Let's as a church come together. And I was skeptical of that because I used to direct VBS and I directed it with the lodging yeah. method. And uh, I was sort of bitter about the fact that we got we took away the party. Yeah. And we didn't need – it's okay to have fun while ministering. But one, the benefit that I saw in that was we as a church came together as yeah. a family. Now, anybody we met at VBS had, can follow up with our weekly program, with our school, with visits from yeah. me, with – you know, and they see us on the street and they know our names now. And that was so much more effective. And so I think Bible schools are yeah. important in their yeah. place. That, I've written articles about Bible yeah. schools. It's interesting you mentioned that because that's exactly what we did this year. We we, we really? did not do the bringing in 30 young people. Um, there there are several reasons for that. One, the biggest one was it was just exhausting to host 30 people. Um, and so the actual Bible school was more exhausting for us because now we're all doing it. Mm -hmm. But in the grand scheme, it wasn't like a month of preparation and hosting and stuff. It was just two weeks of showing up for two hours in the evening at the park. But, but that exact same thing, we came together as a church in a way that we've never done before. And now we, we, we actually have church in the park that we had Bible school. And so every week we're there and we know the, the parents and the kids that are walking around, they may not be coming to church, but, we can follow up with them now. Um, so I totally, I don't mind you saying that at all because that's something we're 
processing and, and thinking about a lot as well. I didn't know much about it, but I have friends that have gone to, to California for UBS, and I'm like, uh, let me be careful. Maybe Asher's directing that or yeah. something. <laughs> I'm about to counter-promote his work. But yeah, I, I just saw a tremendous value in us focusing in on a um, our family reaching out to other, mm-hmm. other families. And we're one big family reaching out to the Rojas Wiley family or yeah. the the uh, whatever family we're we're inviting them to even join if they want to but for now we're simply serving teaching loving um from there we'll see what doors open up yeah yeah wow well thank you Keyshawn. we're pushing two hours i think already and oh yeah i i would have loved we 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 didn't really get into a whole lot of conversation about uh race and in dynamics in church and maybe maybe we can follow up with that sometime. One thing I really appreciate is your emphasis on, and I I forget how you worded it exactly, but the you were talking about you just briefly mentioned white privilege, and and you thought you mentioned how it's important for people to understand that, but even more than that is that we're united in Christ and focused on on Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and I, just for my audience, um, depending on, I don't know how, where you're listening to this from or whatever that there's a lot of talk out there by other white people that talk about how it's important to be focused on Jesus Christ. And it can sound like a bypass of talking about the real issues that face. This is a black brother, Keyshawn sharing this. I, I think you've gathered over the last hour and a half or so that he he definitely sees places that we need to grow as a church, as a Mennonite church, as a church as a whole. Um, but it's definitely true. Like we cannot, even when we go to address those issues, and I, I, I would love to maybe have you on sometime in the future and talk more specifically about this. But even sure. when we're talking about those specific racial issues, if our focus is not on Jesus and the fact that we are as Christians united in Jesus, it's just going to cause further division. It's not going to, it's not going to nurture that family, the family of God, the, the body of Christ. And, um, Thank you for sharing. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts or any, I there in the middle part of it, you were talking and I was just like, wow, this is so good. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it myself just to, to take in. But, um, the emphasis of sharing our lives with everyone as, as we are making disciples, it's, it's sad that not like the reality is not every church. A lot of churches have people are filled with people you've seen for the last six to 26 years every Sunday. And <laughs> there's a few of us in the cities or whatever. And and there's other, I know of, of work in Ohio and Indiana and stuff that are in smaller towns and stuff. So I don't want to just make it a city thing. But we we kind of get forced to face our bias or our our tradition and and how we need to break out of that and share. But every church of Christ ought to be disciple making and 
that involves mm-hmm. sharing our lives, not just a, a kids club or a yearly Bible school or even just a once a week meeting activity of witnessing or whatever, but having people over for meals, doing what that family does or our, like inviting people to do what our family does for the night or the day. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought that was really, really good. Really, really powerful. Yeah. Any, any final words or. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share. And, uh, you know, if people, if people leave this thinking, what do I do? And, And I, Again, my encouragement is what it always is, is, you know, open up the book of Matthew and, and, and look at the things that Jesus said, not what we practice. Look at, look at exactly what he said. For example, if it says that for those who take from you, do not ask in return. Well, I've been in situations where I've seen people uh, justify forcing payment back because, um, because it's good for them to return what they stole. And, and that's that, I think that's spot on, to be honest, with protecting, if, if someone stole from my brother, if I go to confront the, the thief and say, I think we should pay that back to them. But us personally, our own rights um, ought to be dead. <laughs> we, we should not feel the right to, yeah. we, should, we should happily surrender and say, Lord, I say happily, we should, peacefully surrender and say, Lord, this is tough. Like I really wanted that laptop, but, um, yeah, I lost the $800 laptop to a thief one time. It was gifted to me by a friend. And, uh, uh, one of the things that marked a change in my life, how I knew Jesus was truly inside of me is my first thought was, I'm not going to get that thing back and I don't want it back. And, and to me, that was Jesus working and breathing in me and saying, your nature has to change. You have to no longer be attached to your things. They are now my things. And and uh, I said, yes, Lord. Now, things have gotten harder since then. You know, I've gotten more things. And there's still a desire for me to say, yes, Lord, everything is yours. And if it's um, wrongfully taken here, um, then I, I'm not going to lose any faith or any belief. Um, that That's so much more useful and right and in God's design for us than finding ways to wisely justify doing the exact opposite of what that scripture says. And, um, you know, there's lots of things like that. If you really look at it, you really read through it several times, there are just write down yeah. things that, you know you don't see in yourself and in others and then go and do those things and don't wait for your youth group to go do it with you because reality is they probably won't and you're going to get frustrated you need to go out and do it maybe start with your personal family and family sharing time come up and say i've been reading the book i've been reading the bible and i'm not sure we're actually doing what what jesus told us to do and start those conversations and i think that that is the best way to encourage more discipleship and more um that's my my mission is to share that type of thing and hope that the mark on humanity the mark on eternity is greater than before you don't necessarily see immediately results because you're not giving a handbook of steps to follow to earn more christians 
Um, but in a world of free will, that can never happen. And so instead, we simply refocus in on what we were created to be, and we live that out. And that's not a light on the top of the hill mindset, although that's a very valid mindset. It's in the scriptures of we're just going to live Christian lives and people will see. Um, we're going to go into the world and we're going to disciple and teach and love and serve. And always esteeming them better than ourselves and always committing our lives to them. And God, if you're tired on a certain, on a Sunday night and uh, it feels like, you know, it's, it's my Sunday, I'm supposed to be free and people are harassing me. Pray, go, go to the source of the person who, who at any moment could have freed you from those people, but decided not to and pray and seek the Lord. Um, and he will be found. And, and, and in the same way that that's the encouragement for us as Christians, that is what will save the lives of people we care about that are not Christians. And, and that's what I feel. Um, my, my life mission is to encourage um, others to, while, while myself um, charging towards that, to, to love God and give their life yeah. to him. And whatever ways that we're not doing that, we have to, we have to choose now. Yeah. And remembering that when I look at my, my family members, biologically family members that are not saved. And then I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what their background, what their story, what their economic status, what their culture background. I am actually, I, I naturally feel the affection for the family that I'm biologically family, biological family members with. But I ought to feel that same or greater affection for all those that I'm family with yeah. in Christ. Thank you so much, Keyshawn, for coming on. And people can read your your own writings. You've how do you have a pattern how often you write or is it's kind of as So for this year I was doing the series and still am. We missed a we missed a okay. month actually, so we had to wait three months. Uh, we took a long okay. break. And so the next one's coming out in the in a newspaper soon. I can post that okay. soon. Um, so in about a month or so, I'll another yeah. one out, and and then the last one will come in late December. Okay. Um, other than that, um, I'm trying every other month. Okay. But with teaching, yeah, um, it, it's uh, I got to be present here you, first. You so. have, but yeah, go back and read the, the articles I've written and. Feel free to email me or call or contact me and yeah, um, but what you thought for sure. And it's just to get it again. It's Urbanite Musings KW. Yeah. At yep. WordPress or sorry, Urbanite Musings KW dot WordPress dot com. Is that correct? Yep. And do you have your email on the website there, or should we give it here? Well. I'm assuming my name will be in the title yeah, or description Yeah, I'll just somewhere. drop it in the in the KeyshawnWashington at gmail.com. Okay. That sounds good. It's yeah. pretty simple. And there's also Anabaptist Perspectives. I don't know if uh, my audience is familiar with them. Uh, my friend Reagan Schrock is a big part of that. You can check it out. I think it's AnabaptistPerspectives.com. They're also on Facebook. Um, and they have done two interviews, I think, right, with you? Kind of a yep. part one and part two. And so I definitely recommend checking those out as well. Yeah, thanks so much, Keyshawn, for coming on and 
sharing with us. Pleasure. Thank you.